5,000. That's the number I want to share with you today. And that, uh, that number, if you don't know what that's referencing, should scare you a little bit. Google and Yahoo are defining spam as any organization sending over 5,000 emails each day into its network. And that includes automated emails as well. So what I want you to think about, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is, think about how many emails that your organization sends to other organizations on a daily basis. 5,000 for a small company or a small team of SDRs is not much, but that is nothing for a large enterprise. And it's some news that Outreach had just shared, and they're starting to crack down. And this should scare you if you have been relying on mass blast cold emails to book meetings. And the reason I'm excited about this, and we'll dig into this a little bit more here in a second, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, this is Outbound Squad. My name's Jason Bay, your host, and we're all about helping you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an account executive or a BDR or a sales leader that manages one of those two groups of folks, you're definitely in the right place. So cold email. Predict what is really going to change here. And I've seen this comment for a while. I, with all of the emails that outreach and your sales lofts, and you know, Zoom's got a platform now, Zoom Info, excuse me, Gong's got a platform. I mean, Clary's got a sales engagement tool now. I mean, everyone's getting into the sales engagement game. Well, they sync up with Google and Outlook email addresses. And I'm surprised Outlook hasn't cracked down. A little bit more on this, but essentially the way that it's going to work, according to what Outreach had sent out here, is that by February 1st, 2024, if you're bulk sending emails and you get a complaint rate of 0.3% or higher, Google and Yahoo will automatically block all messages coming from that organization. So essentially where this is going is if you don't send personalized emails that are super spammy and irrelevant, you're going to hit that complaint threshold pretty quickly. And what you're going to start seeing is an inability to break into a lot of the accounts that you want to break into. I think this is going to completely change the game. We had something very similar, and I'm sure still exists when I was running B2C call centers, and it was, I believe it was a 3% drop rate, uh, a disconnect rate when you're using an auto dialer. So in other words, the way an auto dialer works is it's got multiple lines dialing at the same time, and what happens oftentimes is you have to hang up lines when someone picks up. And if you do that more than 3% of the time, you hit a threshold where there are actual like legal ramifications. So I wonder what this is going to look like in terms of legal ramifications in the future. But that's the news that I wanted to share with you today. So I would really start thinking about, especially if you're a sales leader in a mid-market or enterprise org that has hundreds of reps sending cold emails, you've really got to start thinking now. That the time I'm recording this, this is mid-November, you got to start thinking about now how you're going to personalize and teach your reps how to send really good one-to-one emails that don't get flagged as spam. All right, so today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Mike Weinberg here in a minute. Uh, Mike Weinberg, uh, someone I've really looked up into the you know, looked up to, excuse me, in the space. He, for people that do what I do, coaching, training, et cetera, he is sort of at the pinnacle. He's got all the best-selling books, has worked with all of the great companies, and he just came out with another book called The First Time Manager Sales. 
and it's a really great read for anyone that's in their first year or two as a frontline leader or, or more honestly, I got a lot out of it. And I've been in sales and sales leadership for a decade and a half now. But we talked about managing up. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as a frontline manager is that a lot of the things that you want to do to be productive and for your team to be productive require you to manage up and say no to things and to protect your time and your team's time. Easier said than done, right? How do you do that? We talked about accountability. We talked about coaching versus accountability. We talked about meetings, talent management, communication frameworks, you know, how to get out of your team's way. Should you ride shotgun more on your team's deals right now? I mean, we went really through everything. It's a really, really just great time I had talking with Mike. So go check out his book, The First Time Manager Sales. You can check it out on Amazon. Let's get to the interview. So we were talking right before we hit record that we have a mutual friend in Jeff Bajoric. <laughs> so shout, shout out to Jeff. Uh, but before we dig in, I, it's, uh, I've been such a follower of your work. So it's nice to actually talk to you. And I've, I've heard like your audio books and stuff are interesting. So I've heard you talk a lot, but this is our first time talking. So it's, uh, it's good to have you on the show. You're probably tired of my voice. We haven't even started yet. So man, Jason, this is a treat. When you uh, initiated this conversation with me and invited me on the show, I was thrilled because it's been fun watching what you're doing and the message you're preaching and the value you're bringing in the sales community. So I'm up for going down any path you'd like to with this conversation. I'm really honored to be here. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you just came out with a book that we'll talk about here in a second. And there's not a lot of resources dedicated to the frontline manager in sales, you know, especially. So it's definitely a very relevant topic for everyone that's a sales leader that's listening to this. And I'm curious if you could take us back. What was your journey like learning how to, you know, manage people? Was there anything that when you think about your first year or two doing that, that, that was like tough for you or that you struggled with or anything like that? With everything? Yeah. I mean, the entire thing was a brutal transition for me. It's part of the reason that I, there's such irony for me. You know, when, when I wrote Sales Management Simplified and Jeb Blunt was good enough to write the forward and he called it arguably the greatest book ever written on sales management, which honestly sounds nice, but there's not that many books on sales management to begin with. So I, I appreciate the honor. But yeah. the irony to me that the, the popularity of that book, and now that I wrote this next book for, for first time managers, if you saw me in my first six months as a sales leader, you'd crack up. Like the fact yeah. that I am the guy talking about sales management. And part of the reason that I've spent the last 15 years or so on this journey is because I struggled. I flailed, you know, and I didn't understand the transition. And this will be part of where we go today, Jason. I did not understand the massive shift required to go from being self selfish to being selfless and yeah. to go from winning on my own to winning through others. I mean, that's a night and day transition. The only thing similar about the, the job of the sales leader or the sales manager and the salesperson is the word sales. So, you know, I wanted to be a management leadership like everybody else, but I didn't really understand what it entailed and the amount yeah. of crap and admin and politics and garbage and non-sales, you know, non-high value sales leadership things that were put on your plate. So I did not have an easy shift into the role. Did you have prior leadership experience to that in sports or did you lean on anything else in your life prior to that? 
Yeah, I had I had leadership in nonprofits and on boards okay. and yeah. in sports, um, in a couple other ways, um, in in even YEO. You know, I was in a, in a leadership role in a entrepreneurs organization. Yep. But none of that prepared me for the burden of being a sales manager and what the company, and this, this is a big part of what's going on today. I, I am convinced that a vast percentage of the senior leaders in C-suites today have completely lost sight of what the highest value activities are for sales managers. Because if you look at all the crap they bury them in and the number of meetings they ask them to sit in, particularly post-COVID, right? On you know, virtual meeting after virtual meeting and the number of emails they process. And all the things that get put on their plate, the meetings they get invited to that have nothing to do with leading the sales team. I, th I feel like they don't, senior management doesn't really understand what the sales manager's job is. So it's, yeah. a, it's a huge pivot. And I was unprepared for it, even though I had a lot of leadership experience in other places. And I had been a successful coach and consultant. I'd been a top hunter in many companies. I mean, number one producer. And I had four years coaching and consulting, but I still was unprepared for the, the vortex of the frontline sales manager role. Yeah, it seems like, and I love your commentary on this. I think Andy Paul had put, he talks about a stat a lot. It's something around 95% or something of what gets spent on training within a sales org is on the wrap and very little gets saved for the frontline manager. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? What's driving that? Is it is it like a safer thing to do? Because it's people this. I don't know. <laughs> I love Andy Paul. So anytime you quote Andy Paul or any statistic, I mean he, you know, he's got more research and more insights. Yeah. I think he's brilliant. Um I think it's easy to check the box on sales training. Okay. Because that's a standard thing to spend money on. But part of what I've been doing since my sales manager simplified book came out was when I get called to do a training. My conscience forces me to say to the senior leader, to the C-suite, whoever I'm talking to, this is great. I, your people could do better at developing new business. They could be more strategic in their targeting. Um, they could certainly prospect with more effectiveness. And I can't wait to talk about prospecting with you because of your bent. Um, they could tell a more compelling story. They could do better discovery. I mean, they could spend more time selling. Like your people could use training on the basics of new business development for sure. But I'm, I'm obligated to tell them like from my conscience saying, but if you don't deal with the big sales leadership stuff, accountability, coaching, culture, yep. comp, talent management, addressing underperformance or keeping your best people happy and maximizing their production. Like, like I basically just outlined the new book for you there. Those are the key sales leadership behaviors. Yep. If you don't address that stuff, what's the sales training going to accomplish? If you want to win for the long term, you've got to play on both sides. You've got to equip and enable and coach and train the salespeople, but you better help the managers do better accountability, do better coaching, understand their high payoff activities, because if they don't do that stuff, nothing will last. So I don't know yeah. why there's a lack of investment or desire to upgrade sales management because, and this is what I preach at with everybody. If you invest in your managers, you get the multiplier effect. Right. And I took that term from the, a brilliant woman named Liz Wiseman who wrote the book Multipliers and talked about what great leaders do is they multiply themselves into their people. That's the picture of what sales managers should be doing. But most of them aren't because they don't know what their job is. They don't know how and they're getting buried in corporate crap. So they don't do those multiplication type activities, accountability, coaching, development, et cetera. Yeah. One more question before we yeah. get into the strategies and tactics on this topic. Do you, I think Rain Group had a study that they did. It showed something like 
most of sales training is forgotten. About 80 to 90% of sales training is forgotten within a quarter of learning it. Mm -hmm. And then Gartner had something else, like within 30 days, a rep forgets, <laughs> you know, basically all of what they learn. Do yeah. you feel like this is the culprit? That's I've never been asked that. I need to think about it. I don't want to give you a cheap answer. It's certainly a contributor to the the lack of stickiness, we'll say, from training and coaching. Um, I bet it's I bet it's certainly one of the culprits. But this is the thing that I don't I don't get. It's not just that managers aren't reinforcing sales training or helping their people with sales process. They're not even managing. They're not addressing underperformance. They're not having legitimate accountability conversations. They're not preparing for and leading good team meetings. Like those are the fundamentals. That's the blocking and tackling of what the sales manager's job is. And most sales managers, particularly in bigger companies today, they don't even get to that stuff because yeah. everyone else is putting work on their desk and sending them, you know, 843 emails to process. I mean, it, so some of the culprit, you know, is, is, is the training is not sticking for a lot of reasons, but the, the managers don't get to do their daily job. Yeah. So let's talk about that. The, you mentioned the non-sales stuff. So if we talk about a sales manager's job, let's talk first about the managing yourself component of that as a sales manager. And if you could also provide a lens of, I, I think there's probably a lot of frontline leaders that will see or listen to this that are kind of in a position where they're kind of not dealt a great hand in this right. area with leadership that's probably not going to change. So a lot of it is managing up. What would your advice be to, to a frontline leader? It's like, yes, Mike, I love this preach, but how do I, how do I have those conversations around, Hey, you're asking me to get my team to put a update, a forecast on a spreadsheet every single day. That takes me an hour and a half, two hours just to get that information from everyone. My team is on one to two hours of internal calls every week. I don't even have time to really listen to a call or ride shotgun on a call. What? How could someone think about approaching that conversation and you're the managing me. up component of this? I know it's a really kind of big, meaty topic, but how no, would you're you asking the someone? question. I mean, Jason, let, that, I mean, you're jumping right in the deep end. I mean, that is really the challenge because it's typically the boss or the boss's boss that is creating this. I'll call it a vortex, you know, this, this state of overwhelm where, I mean, you have sales managers that could be working 70 hours a week and they're not That's getting crazy. it all done. It's, it's yeah. crazy. And I'm going to quote a couple of my, my friends and guests I've had on my show or people like I highlighted in the new book. Um, when you said managing up, and even before you use that term, I was thinking about what this gentleman, Dennis Sorensen has shared with me. He's one of my clients. He's been on my podcast a couple of times. I featured him in the book. And I asked him the question, how do you help particularly the newer manager that's overwhelmed and getting direct, you know, directed by people of, from above, but it's more than being directed. They're being diverted and they're being distracted from their primary responsibilities. I said, J I said, Dennis, how do you help a younger, newer, insecure manager push back against the tide, right? And kind of break out of the mold because they're not going to succeed if they don't get to work on these things that move the needle because they're being judged on results. And Dennis said to me, it is absolutely imperative that we, meaning the frontline manager, get in the conversation with our direct leader and put our plan for growing the business in writing and come yeah. to some agreement in writing with our direct boss that these three or four activities 
right? These behaviors, these tasks are my highest impact, highest payoff things. And we're both going to sign off that you want me doing these things. And it could be everything from running good accountability meetings to, as you said, riding shotgun, whether shotgun is virtual or in the bullpen or actually in somebody's car or in a boardroom with a salesperson, you know, on a sales call. But you get very good clarity around what those priorities are so that when inevitably a month later, you get buried with 19 assignments and do this and get on the Christmas party committee and sit on all these corporate planning meetings and help us with this product and QC and blah, 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 blah. When that starts happening, you can go back to your boss and go, time out. I need you to help me because I was just given about 197 hours of work to do over the next month by all of these people that are emailing me assignments, including attachments they want me to fill out. And I'm getting invited to all these meetings. And you and I agreed, and here's the list, boss. These four things are what are going to move the needle for my team. So we all make our numbers, we make our bonuses, and we don't get screamed at at the end of the year. So I need you to help me prioritize, which is it? Am I going to do these 197 hours of, of work I've been assigned? Or am I going to go work in the field? Am I going to deal with my underperformer and give him some extra attention? Am I going to work with that woman who's my top producer and make sure she's really happy and I'm supporting her? Or am I going to do all these assignments? And we have to push back. Just you said it, Jason. It's managing up and go, which is it? Because I'm a human and there's only so many hours in a day and we're living in fantasy land right now, thinking that we could do all of these things and lead the team to victory. So which is it? And yeah. I think we need to be really direct. Yeah, it's almost the advice that I would give for a rep that's dealing with a tough manager too, that's doing the same thing to them. It's 100%. create a plan, get it in writing, get approval on that plan. Like it's a mutual action plan is what we call it when we're selling, right? It's selling to this person. I love that. It's super tactical. Do you have a, for a person that, and a lot of the managers I interact with are like this. They want to do this. And there's the, I think where they run the risk of is being either too timid or right. not being too direct, but doing it in a way that really just does not make them look good politically within the organ. It looks, makes it look like they're right. You look like you're a rebel, right? You're a complainer. Yeah. You're a rebel. You're a prima donna. You don't want to do the work. No, I'm not saying that, but it's, it's some of it is tone. And it's, yeah. it's going, and where Dennis was really brilliant in explaining this was you've got to get their commitment on what the high payoff activities are mm. because they know it. And if they're being yep. honest with you, no one can look you in the face and go, well, I know we agreed those are the things that are going to drive the business. I need you to ignore those right now because there's all this other corporate crap you got to do. But you got to at least make them say it. So it's, some of it is tone. You're not whining. You're not complaining. You're asking for help. I need direction. And I want to pick up yeah. on something you said a minute ago because I, it's a bigger point than you made it. It's similar to what you said when we coach our salespeople. And I'll use prospecting as an example. Prospecting is rarely urgent. It's super important, but there's always something easier or something more urgent or something more attractive to do. So salespeople put it off. Yep. And you and I would argue that time blocking and getting that those, those key outbound hours in your calendar for a salesperson and those those hours are sacrosanct. Like you're in outbound mode. You're 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 doing your outreach, you're being proactive, you're not fighting customer service fires, you can put those off for an hour or two. We would tell salespeople, you gotta carve out the time. And I think the same is true for sales managers. There is always going to be too much to do. Too many reports, too many meetings, too much things that you could get to. If you don't carve out the time in your calendar for proactive development of your people, 
coaching, working alongside them, which I would argue is one of the two highest impact activities. There's accountability and there's coaching. I think those are our two biggest levers as a frontline manager. We hold our people accountable for doing their job. We slide their results under their nose. We challenge them on the pipeline. Like we, without micromanaging, we're big on accountability. And our second big lever is coaching. It's on us to help them get better at their job. And whether we're coaching skills or we're coaching the deal or we're coaching the pipeline or we're coaching them on life skills or productivity, that means we're proactively investing. And we've got to carve out the time to do that. And if you don't put that time in your calendar a month out and that you're blocking that time for people development, it'll never happen because there's always something more urgent. There's always a fire. And the first thing that gets canceled is the non-urgent coaching because, well, no one's yelling at you that you're not developing your people. And yet that's the very thing that moves the needle on results. Yeah. I mean, it's very similar running a business to I deal with this. I don't know about you. <laughs> it's uh, There's always stuff you could be improving in your business from a marketing standpoint or how you sell or how you deliver. Mm-hmm. And prioritization, I think, is the big takeaway there. It's like get straight on your priorities. So let's talk about, uh, you've referred to them as the, what was the high impact activities? Mm-hmm. What are those highest value activities, the ones that you talk about in the book a lot? What are those core component things that should you know, contribute to the majority of how a high-performing frontline sales rep or a manager, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Let's briefly talk about the first two, which I just mentioned in passing. Uh, Chapter three in the book is where I finally start giving some coaching. In chapter chapter one, I I make the case, you know, you got the most important job. In chapter two, I get into the reality that there's this big transition. Your old job is nothing like your new job, right? So you got to pivot. And then I get into like, what does it look like? How do you succeed in this job? And I say it as clearly as possible. Your number one job is making sure that your people are doing their jobs. That's called accountability. And what shocked me as a new manager was how important accountability was as part of the job. Like I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to help people sell. I don't think I really understood going into the job that a big part of management is actually managing. And that means having conversations about accountability. So we could talk about what that looks like in a second. The second highest impact activity is not just making sure your people are doing their jobs, but helping them get better. And that means you are proactively investing the time to work alongside them or meet with them for the sole purpose of helping them improve, which means personal development. So those to me are the two highest impact. I think well below those two, another high impact activity is preparing for and facilitating really solid sales team meetings. I think sales team meetings have become a lost art. They're boring. They end up like admin sessions or they turn into bitch and yeah. whining sessions where we're complaining or it's yeah. like in, inappropriate group accountability because the manager's not doing good one-on-one accountability. Like nobody wants to sit through a pipeline review for somebody else. But if in the sales team meeting, it's energizing, equipping, and we're doing best practice sharing and we're doing deal strategy brainstorming and people are sharing successes and we're asking each other questions and we're role-playing and like that... People leave there like, okay, I I learned something. I got something out of this meeting. So accountability, coaching, sales team meetings, and then I'll go to talent management as a whole. And and I'll, I'll put that in a really big bucket and say, smart talent managers do a few things. One, they overinvest in their best people. They spend more time with their best people so they know those people can get them the business and they also don't want to lose them. So really good job for retaining and maximizing the output of the best people. And on the flip side, smart talent management means when someone's underperforming, we are not going to turn our head the other way and ignore it. 
We're going to address it. We're going to confront it. And then we're going to jump in and offer to help. Double up accountability, double up coaching, get some bigger yep. commitment from the salesperson. And if, and I mean this, like Jason, I can't say this any cleaner. Could you imagine what would happen to sales cultures and sales results? If frontline sales managers spent 80% of their time doing the stuff I just outlined in the last few minutes, real accountability, not being a jerk, not micromanagement, real accountability results and then pipeline, uh, real coaching like working alongside people or scheduling coaching and development sessions, right? And then good team meetings. And then the rest of the time was spent talent. I'm either protecting and investing and supporting my best people, or I'm really jumping in to overcoach and overhold the count of all my strugglers so I can decide whether I'm going to keep them because I'm going to coach them up to an acceptable level. And if not, then I'm going to coach them out. And if we could just get, and that's why the book is shorter. I mean, this is, you said it, it's my thinnest book because it was eight years since I wrote Sales Manager Simplified and I was able to kind of cut out some of the things because I've done so much sales management work around the globe in the last eight years yeah. that I'm convinced if we just do those five or six things and we avoid playing hero, which we could talk about in a minute, not only will sales managers thrive and, and drive more results and develop their people better, they'll also get their life back because it's not yeah. sustainable to work 70 <laughs> hours a week and get 250. Yeah. That, that's not normal. Yeah. But so I'll, I'll yield there. You could tell you kind of triggered me with that question. And that <laughs> I think if we just do those things, we're going to have more success. No, I love the energy around it. Let's talk accountability. And you use the word micromanagement. It's the number one opportunity. I was working with a company, they had like 300 account executives and a big focus with the frontline leaders I was working on was they've never really talked about outbound. And this is now they have to do it. And what I noticed in working with those frontline leaders is they would start throwing words around like, oh, you know, we don't micromanage. They've been doing this for a long time. We don't tell them what to do. I don't micromanage their <laughs> schedule. And really what it was, was my interpretation of that. My observation was that it was a fear that they had around even approaching the conversation and providing accountability. Can you talk a little bit more around, you talk about this a lot in the book, but what is the difference between accountability and micromanagement? And what does good versus bad look like in this area? That's brilliant. No one asked it that way. That's a really good question. I love this topic because I don't think accountability is a dirty word. And it doesn't get enough attention or enough play. And I, I think there's a there's a reason that the companies you're talking to, those leaders, have a little bit of a fear about pushing people on activity, even though we all know that activity leads to opportunities, which means the pipeline gets healthy and a healthy pipeline is what leads to good results. And where my framework comes from, I stole it. Like I take no credit from this. The guy I worked for back in the 1990s, yes, I'm that old. And then was my business partner for a few years in the early 2000s, a great friend of mine named Donnie Williams. And he loved making his bonus as a vice president of sales, but he was a freedom loving guy and he hated micromanagement. And he came up with this framework and my friends call it the RPA, Results Pipeline Activity. And, and Jason, here's the secret. Here's how you get to here's you, how you get to asking about outbound activity without starting with activity. You start with yeah. results, and we dive deep on results. And if, and maybe in a in a ten or fifteen minute accountability meeting, results are just one or two minutes. Where, did you make your number or not? Where do you stand on the team? If you did great, that's awesome. How'd you pull that off? If you missed your number, ooh, wow. What happened? Tell me about that. And we don't we don't dwell there because you can't change it. The result is yesterday's news. It's history. Yeah. 
you want to stick their nose under it. You either praise them or you go, oh, what happened? And then you quickly progress into the pipeline because the pipeline's the lifeblood. That's where the business comes from. So before we get into outbound activity, because what's going to happen very quickly is if the activity isn't there, they're not going to have a healthy pipeline. And then we're going to have the permission to jump in and go, ho, 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 wait a second. Look at your pipeline. You're not creating deals. You're not advancing deals. There's not enough in here. You don't have enough coverage. I don't think you're going to make your number for the month or the quarter. Do you? And the salesperson looks at the numbers and goes, probably not. Well, then we have the right, and I mean it this way, to go to activity and say, hey, you know what? I'm not cool with you failing. I don't think you want to fail. Your results aren't strong. Or even if they are, I'm looking at your pipeline. It's it's both, both of us would agree it's indicating you're not on track to make your numbers. Let's take a look at your activity. Grab the CRM, grab your target account list, grab your business plan, open your calendar. What'd you work on last month? Tell me about your outreach against your target list. And what do you got scheduled for the next few weeks? Because I don't see the pipeline. You really haven't left me a choice. Let's dive into how you're spending your time. And that my mentor, Donnie, was so smart because that's the way we get the free pass to get to activity without coming across like, hey, bring your numbers in here. How many outbound calls did you make last week? Even though we all know that good outbound and good activity is what leads to pipeline. There's a nuance to his approach where if you start with pipeline and then you go to activity, it's kind of that protection from being accused of being a micromanager. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I love how simple your frameworks are, by the way. I'm a big frameworks guy. <laughs> I am a New York yeah. public school educated, like, you know, B student. Like there's not a lot of calculus going on on this brain. It's pretty much addition. Yeah. So uh, where, uh, where in New York are you from? I was born in Queens. Yeah. And I'm fat because I love New York pizza. <laughs> I'm always craving a legit slice of a, of a New York pie. And uh, I grew up mostly uh, north of New Jersey, across from Westchester, across the Hudson yeah. River in Rockland yeah. County. And then 30 years ago, I moved to St. Louis. So Gotcha. Yeah. So my wife, Sarah, she's from Queens. So similar area. Yeah, I grew out. up in Westchester. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's interesting because we're just about to, we're just about to move there. So you're moving to New York. Yep. Yeah. Well, I know who to come visit when I want a pizza. This is very exciting (laughs) for me. Another, another friend in New York. That's great. I might might have to hit you up for places to, to, because we're, we're trying to figure out where exactly to live. Probably going to be in Westchester somewhere, but, uh, I have one, I have one word for you. Real estate taxes. Good luck with that. So yeah, (laughs) you better keep growing your business, Jason. That's what I got to (laughs) say. That's awesome. Um, Congrats on that. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. So I love the simple frameworks, results, pipeline activity. I think the big takeaway there is if you're hesitant to approach the activity subject, you said earn the right. You have to earn the right to bring that up because I, you know, I have coaches and I've had business coaches in the past where, yeah, when it gets straight to activity, it's just kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. Like I want accountability, but it's just kind of annoying when there isn't context provided right, behind it, you know? You just you just said it perfectly. Because the truth is, we don't really care about their activity. We care about their results. And we know exactly. the results are a function of a healthy pipeline. And the pipeline is a function of good activity. This is just Donnie's little trick to have people feel like, I'm not going to micromanage you, but we all know we're going to get to activity if you're failing. So I'm going to go there. Because the truth is this, and let's be honest, if you had a salesperson that was crushing it, and then I'm like Janet Jackson when I do accountability meetings. I don't let you coast. So if you blew your number away or you're, I don't care if you're ranked number one, I'm still going to come to you and go, hey, what have you done for me lately? Let's look at the pipeline. 
Is it healthy? What did you create last month? That's my favorite accountability question. What opportunities yeah. are new? What are we working on today? We weren't working on 30 days ago. Because then I know yeah. you're not coasting. But if I get yeah. to the pipe and there's not enough in there, they're not putting in opportunities. It's not growing. We're both looking at it. If we apply our typical, you know, the calculation of your win rate or whatever it is against the deals. And we, you look at it and you, get to, you, you, you tell the salesperson, who are we kidding? You and I both look at this number. No, you're not going to make your number for the quarter. Yeah. There's no arguing the data at that point. So you, then it's okay to look at the person and go, listen, I, I want to get you on track. Let's talk about your activity. Why is your pipeline weak? Show me your outbound work. Show me your activity. Let's diagnose this. And what happens is it may be a function of lack of activity. It may be a skills issue. But either way, when you do good accountability, the coaching opportunities bubble themselves to the surface. And because yeah. you're putting the spotlight on the salesperson and you're holding them accountable, you now start to realize, hmm, they might need my help. Here's where I'm going to focus with them. Yeah. And I think that part, the, the intention behind it, I think is super important where if your intention is to let's give the rep the benefit of the doubt that they, mm -hmm. they see this, they want to do it. And for whatever reason, they're being hung up. And like, my intention is to help them with it, not, not be a jerk, you know, about it, but having the hard conversation and holding them accountable. Like, I, I don't know. I think a lot of this really like how you would want a personal trainer to be with you. No, you just said it. Yeah. It's you're for them. You're not against them. Yeah. Everyone needs to hear us. Like if you zone out, zone back in. I mean, what Jason just said is brilliant. You're not doing accountability to beat somebody up. You're doing it because you want them to win. So you yeah. need to show them the facts that the accountability meeting is non-emotional. We're not threatening. We're not using bad words. We're showing yeah. them data. And I'll just say this, any salesperson who bristles that you want to sit down and look at their results and look at their pipeline. If the pipeline stinks, ask about activity. If they don't understand that, like they're telling you, I don't like this. I don't like the pressure. This feels like micromanaging. I'm not sure that's someone you can count on to produce for you. Like yeah. that's the job. And here's the secret, Jason. Donnie's framework that I've unpacked and basically made famous since Sales Manager Simplified came out. That framework works. And 80% of the salespeople actually like this accountability meeting because it focuses them, it's short, and it gets them back uh, focused on the things that really matter. And the only people that don't enjoy having a conversation about results and pipeline and activity are people that are trying to hide from you. And what the yeah. beautiful thing is that this kind of fleshes them out. It smokes them out. And it, yeah. you can't underperform very long if the manager is having this conversation with you every month, because at some point, something's going to give. Okay, one more question on this yeah. topic before we sure. move to coaching. Just being now that I know that you're, I, I didn't know that you were a New Yorker. I lost most of my accent. I've lost most of my accent. <laughs> yeah. I was so like, I wouldn't be able to tell. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that my wife, Sarah, talked about a lot when she moved over here, because we met, you know, 2016-ish was when she moved yeah. over to the West Coast. And one of the things she talked about was East Coast versus West Coast communication style. And on the East Coast, as, you, as you're aware, it can be very direct. Um, but for someone that is listening to this, and I see this a lot, that's a frontline manager and they're not used to very direct mm -hmm. communication style. Any tips for someone like that? And maybe what it means to be direct too, because being direct doesn't mean that you're a jerk about it. It just means you don't dance around what you're seeing and you just talk about it, you know, but any tips for someone that- Yeah, that I think you've almost, I think you've laid it out beautifully. This is not a confrontation. We're not like on opposing sides of the table here. It's yeah. a data conversation. In fact, with a lot of my clients, they don't even call it the accountability meeting. 
they call it the results and pipe meeting. And I tell sales managers, here's what you tell your people. You introduce the concept. You say, we're going to get together monthly for like 10 minutes. And it's a total focus conversation for your benefit. I want to make sure you're going to blow your numbers away. So we're going to spend about a minute or two looking at where you stand against your goal, against last year, against the team. And then we're going to yeah. pivot and we're going to dive into the pipeline, not like a deal strategy review. We'll do that separately. I love to coach you on deals. This is going to be making sure that you're comfortable. And as your leader, I'm comfortable that you're creating enough opportunities and that your pipeline is fat and healthy to ensure you make your number. Cause that's what we both want. Like if you say, if you set it up that way, it's not a high conflict thing. And I've helped sales managers who are very relational and very conflict diverse by showing them you're not having a conflict. You're having a yeah. data-based, rational, unemotional conversation. You do not need to threaten. You do not need to raise your voice. And the salespeople don't need to be defensive. It's their numbers. And yeah. you can show them how to have this dialogue. And I'll say another thing. You didn't ask this, but this thought went through my mind when you said it. You don't need to earn the right to hold your people accountable. You could be young and newly promoted and a brand new manager. You're in charge. The company has put that mantle on you that you are responsible for this team. And there's nothing wrong with you as a 28-year-old sitting down with a 50-year-old who's been in this job for a long time going, hey, we're going to get together on a monthly basis or we're going to take a look. I want to make sure you're going to keep winning. We're going to look at your results and we're going to look at your pipeline. And if yeah. necessary, we'll dive into your activity. It's for your sake. You don't need to earn the right to have this conversation. So my coaching is don't make it emotional. Don't make it a conflict. It's just data and sales is about results. So it's fair game to always be talking about results. Yeah. Love it. Let's talk about coaching. I think one of the things you talked about in the book too, that might be a good starting place is what's the difference between coaching and accountability and what type of coaching maybe should we, what are the different types of coaching, I guess, that we could provide? Yeah, we could spend four days on this piece, right? There's a lot yeah. of coaching. Um, there, there's coaching the human, there's coaching productivity, there's life coaching, there is sales skill coaching, there is pre-call and what I'll call pre-game coaching where we're getting somebody ready for a meeting or a presentation. Um, there's even in-game coaching. Sometimes when we're alongside someone working together with them where we might be coaching them or coordinating with them in the moment. And then certainly after we observe a salesperson or are working with them, there's post-game where we're doing debriefing and we're giving feedback. So there's the, the pre-game, in-game, post-game. And then there's all the other coaching that shows up, whether it's coaching a deal, coaching the pipeline, coaching on skills. It's, it's, a, it's a very catch-all word. But the thing I would say that I, I want to stress for everybody is, and we touched on this briefly earlier, Jason, no one is holding sales managers accountable for doing proactive developmental coaching. We're getting yelled at as a lot of things as a frontline sales leader, but it's very rare someone's putting the pressure on us to ask, hey, how are you doing developing your underperformers? And you have those two rookies on your team. How much better are they today at selling and these types of things than they were six months ago? Like, I don't see executives asking sales managers those questions. And because of that, that proactive developmental coaching is the first thing that gets postponed or canceled when everyone's overwhelmed and busy. So the key is building in blocks of time in the calendar for proactive coaching. I think we, we touched on that a little bit earlier. But what I, I want to I answer something that you asked because I think it's really important. I think the accountability conversation must be separate from the coaching conversation. Yeah. What I have found is that the accountability meeting works best when it's really short, 
10 to 15 minutes and focused on one thing, accountability. Because as, as I said earlier, if, if the salesperson's not succeeding, I want them to leave that meeting with you with an uncomfortable feeling. If their results are bad and their pipeline's weak and their activity's not good, I don't want them walking out feeling good. But what happens, a lot of managers, they want to help the salesperson, which they should. So when they, when they show them that they're failing and the pipeline's weak, they immediately start coaching. Hey, let's talk about these couple of deals. Let's figure out what we're going to do next. And let's, and I'm like, that's not what I want to do in that meeting because I want them leaving uncomfortable. I think a best practice is to say, you know what, Joe, I want to help you with these couple of deals. And I want to talk about some other sales skills things. Can we get together on Friday morning? Grab your calendar. Let's set up a couple hours to do some skills review and do some strategy on your three biggest opportunities right now. I want to help you. Yeah. And then that meeting, the other meeting is not accountability. We've already done that. Now it's just coaching. Hey, Joe, what are you thinking about these three deals? Give me an update. How are we going to approach it? Let me ask you some questions. Let's figure this out. To me, that feels like coaching versus accountability. Does that make sense, Jason, when I kind of separate it like that? It makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. It makes a lot of sense to separate those two because <laughs> I love that. I want them feeling uncomfortable. It's the same feeling that I want if we're in our business, a month is not going as well as I had hoped or whatever. I want that uncomfortable feeling because that energy I get from that, like really kicks my ass into gear. Yeah. You and, and that's I, what because, you want the rep. Because as entrepreneurs, a funny story, when I first went into business with Donnie way back in the early 2000s, his wife came to me we were in the, we probably were three, four weeks in business and she goes, Hey Mike, when's payday? And I looked at her and she's a great lady and she manages their finances. And it was a great question. I said, yeah. Joanne, Payday is when our clients pay us. <laughs> and you know, you said it, right? You, you're running your own business. You get that uncomfortable feeling when you look at your pipeline and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I have it. Like, I'm so busy. I have so much inbound demand and I'm flying yeah. all over the place that sometimes I forget to fill my own pipeline. And I'll be on yeah. an airplane flying back from speaking. I'll have all this, you know, accolades and I'll be feeling great about myself. And I'll have this like sobering thought, Mike. How many like legitimate discovery meetings did you have in the past two weeks? And what does your pipeline look like for next March? And yeah. I'll have this panic attack because that sales instinct yep. is in me. Yep. And I'll I'll come back I'm like okay, but you know you need someone holding you accountable. It, the mirror is a really powerful tool. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about something else you talked about quite a bit in the book. And I, I'm not lying when I say this. I've literally heard this in a client call the other day with frontline leaders, and someone said that riding shotgun on sales calls was a waste of a manager's time, that that's, that you shouldn't do that. And I was just thinking, if you're a sales manager and by hopping on a call with a rep, they don't feel like that's the most awesome thing in the world that their manager is there supporting them. And even in a virtual call, I know that it's recorded, but being there, what that made me think of is, well, what are you doing in those calls if it's unproductive. And the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, everyone's had that manager that doesn't let the rep fall on their face or learn that just takes over and does that. And, or I see this actually more common, Mike, is the manager that is just not good at selling that comes mm -hmm. on the call and you're like, oh God, dude, Crap. I might lose yeah. this deal because of this person, right? What's your, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, 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 I can tell this is real world because you're hearing these things. I, I think that people that would say with a blanket statement, that's a waste of time. Sales managers working alongside and observing their people and going on sales calls is a waste. That's an incorrect. That's a fallacy. That's because they're seeing something bad happen or something's not being done well. Because I think it's one of the highest impact things you can do. 
how well can you perceive your people's effectiveness if you don't watch them do it? You yep. can't see everything in the CRM and on the scorecard, right? And, and if you're in a management role, there's an assumption that you kind of know what you're doing. And if you watched your people once in a while, you'd have insights about what they're doing well and what they're not doing well and where they need development. Plus, going on sales calls also gives you a firsthand exposure to the customer in the market that's yep. not being filtered through your salesperson. Sometimes I want to go on the field because I want to hear the customer or the prospect in my, with my own ears and, and get my pulse on the finger of the business. So I think it's it's bad thinking for, for anyone who would say it's, it's not valuable. Um, but what you said is true though, Jason, there are managers that don't know how to behave and they either play the hero and they have this huge ego and they dive in and they take over, right? Or they don't let someone stumble and bumble because every opportunity is so important. I had to jump in and save it when you and I would probably argue that there are moments where there'd be more value in the education of letting the salesperson stumble and bumble in a meeting because of the learning opportunity it would create and the pain that that salesperson experienced by failing in front of you may change their trajectory because they are willing to understand, hmm, maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I have to plan better. Maybe I need more questions or whatever the thing was that tripped them up that they were not effective in this meeting. So it's helping managers understand Sometimes when you're there, you're just there to observe or you're there to supplement. One of the ways I like to say is you can edify the conversation because you're the leader. You can have more macro, bigger picture uh, contributions to the dialogue, but you probably as a rule of thumb shouldn't be running the meeting if you're the leader. I like to have the salesperson be the quarterback and run the meeting and you play manager or executive. And if they get in trouble, you can jump in. You can bail them out by asking the, the prospect a question or you could, you could offer some assistance. But that's a big difference between jumping and saying, my airplane, I got it. I'm going to fly this now. You know, you yeah. get in the back. And I, I think there's a, a tendency of managers to, I don't know, inflate their own importance and feel like they got to jump in and demonstrate there's a reason they're there. So they, they overdo it in the meeting because they want to show the customer that they're valuable. And yeah. they're sometimes trying to overmodel for their own salespeople. I don't know. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that and the other... I think part of it is the pressure. You talk about this a lot in the book, the pressure where they feel like they need to step in because if, well, if the rep doesn't, if they lose this deal and I didn't do something, what if my, what if that keeps my team from hitting target? Mm. I think there's that pressure. And then the other element is, I think that there's just some EQ involved with this around, Hey, when I step in as a leader and I'm on a call with a rep, if I do too much, I kind of take the power away from the rep and then you don't set them up for like you set them up for a negotiation where the prospect, the customer says to the rep, Hey, I want to talk to your manager. Can your manager approve that? So I think being very aware of the power dynamic and presenting yourself more as a team, that's like an EQ thing. I think that's that if, if you're paying attention in the moment, you pick up on that, you know, kind I, of stuff. I think you said that brilliantly. That's a hundred percent. You have to understand your role and how it plays out. I, I don't say it as nicely as you said it. I say that when you do that as a sales manager, you are effectively neutering your salesperson. Yeah. I mean, you, you they become useless. They're a pawn. If, yep. you run, if you run all the meetings and you answer all the questions and they know you're the one with all the power, why would they want to talk to your salesperson anymore? And you just said it. You're setting up the negotiation. Everything else will be with you. And plus the other piece of it, why would your salespeople want to work with you? Yeah. If you're neutering them and embarrassing them and taking over, you're not edifying, building up, helping. You're just running yeah. the show. And I just want to address this one piece because it's a chapter in the book and it's, it's, a, it's a problem of epidemic proportion 
particularly in tech, it's where the sales manager is playing team hero. Yeah. They're not making heroes of the people. They want the credit. They feel the pressure. They over-insert themselves into every situation. They take over the sales calls. when Or when they're prepping with someone for a sales call, they're not asking good questions and coaching. They're dictating. Let's do this and you do that, right? And when they're reporting results for the team, it's my team did this, not what my people did. It's my team. And the ego gets in the way and control freak stuff gets in the way and pressure gets in the yeah. way. And, and managers use all of those causes as an excuse to do, and I, I say it like this, when you play hero, instead of focusing on making your people into heroes, you're doing instead of leading. You're doing instead of coaching. You're doing instead of holding people accountable. And that's not sustainable. Like you, yeah. you, you're not multiplying yourself into your people. You're trying to do six people's jobs. And that's why you're burning out. And that's why you're exhausted. And it sends a really odd message to the team also that like you're the center of the hub and like they become codependent and weird and like that's not a helpful leadership mentality. So I'm hoping managers will spend more time trying to multiply and create heroes. And it, listen, let's be honest. It often takes more work to teach someone to fish than to catch a fish for them. Yeah. But if you teach them to fish, you've changed the trajectory of their career You've enabled and equipped them. And now you have a whole team of people that can produce instead of you being necessary in every imaginable situation. It's a big deal. I love that. One more quick topic I want to spend some time sure. on before we hop. You talked about this throughout the book, but I'm curious about your take on productivity and the relation with like communication. So like an example I'll give you is if we want to have protected blocks as a manager, where, hey, we have this hour set aside, let's say where we're doing proactive coaching. And let me know if I may be overthinking this part, but having clear ways that reps communicate with you and how you communicate with them around stuff that is urgent versus stuff that is not. Like a really, I see this so much and it drives me crazy. I could not imagine running a company like this. My wife had a sales job where literally her manager was like, you have to respond to Slack messages within 10 minutes if you get them from, from us. Like that was the protocol with the team. And I was like, what? It's, an, it's inappropriate. It's a, you, yeah. You're, because you're not a heart surgeon. You're not an ER doc. Like, what do you, what do you mean? You have, what, what kind of leash am I on? What world are we living yeah. in here? What if I'm in a sales call? What if I'm in a 90 minute meeting with a prospect and you're Slack messaging me? Do I get grace then? Or am I supposed yeah. to check my phone every 10 minutes in the middle of a very yeah. important opportunity? That's or ludicrous. Not to, or it's like, you know, what if I'm in the middle of an, a one-hour prospecting block? Really? You would rather me interrupt the thing that's building pipeline so that I could get a forecast to you that you asked for me late, you know, last minute? But what are, do you have any general maybe guidelines around how you communicate with your reps in a way that like lets them do their job, but also really sets good. up, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm still angry about that. You're thinking about your wife's situation just because that's so inappropriate. I mean, yeah. there's a, there's a childishness and an insecurity and a, uh, management thinking like that they're God, like, who, yeah, you, you can't have an upset stomach and be stuck in the bathroom. You can't be in a meeting. You can't be, take your example, the prospecting thing. The thing we beg salespeople to do is carve out the hour, stay in outbound mode. Don't get distracted by inbound messages. If there's a fire, someone else will put yeah. it out. Otherwise, it can wait 59 minutes till you're done with your time block. If you call somebody back an hour after you get a message, that's pretty darn good response time, unless you're the yep. fire department, right? 
or you're a heart surgeon. Like, so I, I disagree fundamentally with the, the feeling that you need to be available every 10 minutes. I, so I'm, I'm with you on that. To, to answer your question, I think it just, it's, it's like good family communication. I think a manager and reps can establish some smart ground rules of, Hey, let's talk about what's an emergency and what's not. And if you really have an emergency, there's some things you could do. My wife and I have this. My, my, in fact, Donnie's the one that taught me this. I'll decline a call from my wife if she calls me and I'm in a meeting. If she calls me a second time within five seconds, that's like a signal. I'm like, Mike, you're going to stop what you're doing right now because I need you. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. broken down on the side of the road and I need my husband now. Like, there, and I have the same rule with my kids. So I think you can establish some rules where it's like, if you're dying, and you need oxygen, you do this. Yeah. And if I see it, I'll do what I can to get to you. But yeah. if it's if it falls in this category, can you ping me? Can you send me an email and say, can we talk tomorrow or this evening? Or I think the whole world and several of the really good senior executives I've worked with have preached this to their people. We're out of control with these things. And they're going to laugh yeah. at us 20 years from now when they write the, like, the, the reality of how our brains were rewired. I guess, as Cal Newport said, like we're fried. Like we're, we're yeah. you know, in, in his book, uh, Deep Work, like we can't even focus for 10 minutes on something because we've rewired our brains because we're always being interrupted. I think we can figure out some really smart rules with our people of what, what ranks at the level of there is a fire and I'm going to break down the door and talk to you to, I could kind of use some input on this. Can we get on the phone in the next 24 hours? Because the world is not set up. If every salesperson has to be available or every sales manager for nonstop inbound instant communication. I don't know that we understand what the job of sales is. Part of the reason I went into sales, fun, freedom, financial reward. That freedom piece is like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not reporting and I'm not punching a time card. I'm here to produce. And the same thing for management. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but we have got to regain some control of like normalcy and retrain yeah. some of the world. And I'll just say, yeah. I'll share this story, Jason. It's, it's more for salespeople. Some of the best salespeople I've worked with in the last year or two have gotten really good at training their customers that they're not yeah. the customer service person. Just because I have a phone and I love you and I own the relationship, it does not mean I'm your personal concierge. And if you have a customer service issue or you need a part, yeah. then why don't you call the parts manager because he's there to take your call. And yeah. I have some successful salespeople in the industrial space who have retrained customers. If you need me, call me. I'll be there in a second. But here are the other people you can call directly. Because I, I laugh. In the old days when I was selling back in the 1990s and we didn't have cell phones, you would pull over and find a pay phone and you would check your voicemail yeah. three times a day. And you didn't yeah. have 98 messages because if people needed something, they would call someone else because you were the salesperson. You were out in the yeah. field in your company car with a calling card. So I digress. But you, got, yeah. you know where I'm going with that. We haven't evolved. Some of this great new technology is not led to more productivity. I would say in some ways yeah. we've devolved. Yeah. Now we got you all fired up. We got to, we got to run. This has been awesome, Mike. Um, let us know where, where can people go to grab your book and all of that kind of stuff? Where can yeah, people uh, go to learn more about you if they, yeah, if for Mike some Weinberg, reason they haven't read your stuff? Oh, or well, you're it. so kind. Uh, there are some that don't know who I am. It's mikeweinberg.com, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G. On socials, it's Mike underscore Weinberg. The book is The First Time Manager Sales. And uh, Amazon's probably your best bet to get it. You can just scan even the reviews now. Or you can get a flavor of how people react into the book. So Jason, you're awesome. Thank you, man. Thank you.